Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, November 13, 2016. The share ID for Friday, November 11th, is 9255. This morning, A Vision for You presents, If I can't start and I can't stop, what can I do? All of us have walked through the doors of Overeaters Anonymous in pain, looking for relief. We have come to Overeaters Anonymous as a result of the suffering, frustration, and despair we experienced in our disease of compulsive overeating. We come to OA looking for a solution which will free us from the bondage of our affliction. The very first thing you have to do to solve a problem is find out what that problem is. You have to understand the exact nature of the problem. In order to find a real, lasting solution, you have to understand the problem thoroughly and know exactly what it is. Until you have this information, you can't solve your problem. The Big Book is a textbook that was written to answer three basic questions. Number one, what is the problem? Number two, what is the solution? And number three, what is the program of action necessary for me to find that solution? Joining us this morning to elaborate on the problem and the solution are two recovered compulsive overeaters. Harlan G. from Scottsdale, Arizona will speak about the problem, and Larry K. from Chicago, Illinois will focus on the solution. Let's get started by welcoming Harlan G. to the line. Good morning, Harlan. Thank you. Good morning, Leah, and thank you for your service. And I'm Harlan G. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater, and I live in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I'm very happy to be here this morning. Can I be heard okay, Leah? Yes. Oh, good. Okay. You know, we're talking this morning about I can't start, I can't stop, and this has been the story of my life from day one. From the earliest memories of my life, the earliest images of my life, were of me eating too much food and people yelling at me because of it. And this has been something that has just ransacked me, just destroyed every dream I ever dreamed from the earliest moments of my life. And as a toddler, people would start screaming at my mother and father about how much food I was eating and how fat I was getting. And when I got to be about five or six, and of course, many of you who have heard me on these podcasts and who have known me and and, and maybe have heard me at at a retreat or a convention have heard my story. When I got to be about five or six years old, they started screaming and yelling directly at me. And what they didn't understand was that everything that they were telling me, I agreed with. And there was nothing that I wouldn't have done to acquiesce to their demands. And what were their demands? Their demands were, don't eat so much food, you'll lose weight, and if you lose weight, you'll be okay. You'll be acceptable. Because as a fat child, I was unacceptable to the people in my environment, whether they were children or whether they were adults. People looked at me differently. People treated me differently because I was fat. They would scream at me 
Sometimes they would hit me. Sometimes they would push me. But they always let it be known that if only I would buck up, if only I would pick myself up by the bootstraps and exercise some willpower, that I would be okay, that I too could be a child with dreams and aspirations like the other kids. But they told me from a very early age on, fat boys don't get girlfriends. Oh, I found that out. They told me very early on, fat boys don't get good jobs. They told me very early on that I was unacceptable. And in my pain and in my loneliness, the only solace I had was to turn to the one thing that I would have given anything in the world not to have turned to, and that was the food. Food did something for me that nothing else did. It gave me an instant sense of ease and comfort that nothing else could give me that I found in this world. Food was my friend. Food was reliable. Food was killing me. Food was choking me off from everything that I wanted. I looked in the mirror and I was disgusted with the way I looked for as far back as I can possibly remember. I've hated the way I've looked as a child and as an adult because of my obese condition. What was so alluring about that food? The world looked at me and wondered why I ate so much. And I looked at them and wondered why they didn't. I wondered what it was about these people that could allow them to hold a conversation with French fries or a piece of cake or pie right in front of them, and they would take a fork full of pie and put it in their mouth and put it back and say, who wants the rest of this? And, of course, my hand was the first one to shoot up. I was on diet pills as a nine-year-old prescribed by a doctor. I was on heavy-duty amphetamines as a nine-year-old. My head would be pounding and pounding and pounding and pounding in my temples from the effect of those diet pills. I wouldn't eat, but when those pills would wear off, I would eat Illinois and most of Wisconsin. As you can tell, I'm from born and raised in Chicago, Illinois, home of the world champion Cubs. And I would say the same, I get accused of this now, I would say the same thing like 300 times. And I'd be inside my head going, why are you saying that? Why are you saying that? And I just couldn't stop. And I couldn't hear what anybody was saying to me. It sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher, wah, 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 wah. And my grades were plummeting. I'm, not, I'm an eater. I'm not a fighter. I'm getting in fist fights at school. My clothes don't fit. I didn't fit in my skin. I didn't fit in my clothes, and I didn't fit in the world. As a 10-year-old, they changed the amphetamines because some of the information started coming out about how dangerous these pills were. And as a 10-year-old, they, they changed it from a pink pill to a blue pill. Same effect. The temples, ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. You sleep about 20 minutes a month. You say the same thing 300 times but you don't eat, and I lost weight, and I started looking good. 
And there was something about me that I just couldn't understand. Because, you see, I thought that food and weight were the problem. And everybody in my environment told me that food and weight were my problems. And they told me that if I didn't eat so much, I'd feel better. And I found out that they were right. When I don't eat so much, I feel anger better. I feel fear better. I feel crushes on girls better, jealousy better, guilt, shame, remorse. I feel like killing myself better. I felt everything much, much, much better. And I continued to believe that food and weight were the problem. I continued to believe it because that's what everyone told me and that's what made perfect sense to me. I remember as a teenager, long before I was a teenager, actually, I was emasculated by this illness. I was emasculated physically, and I was neutered and emasculated emotionally by an illness that I didn't cause, I didn't choose, I can't control, and I can't cure. I felt like a victim. I felt as if God hated my guts. I felt as if I had committed some prenatal spree of felonies and I was being punished for something that I didn't do and I didn't understand. But somehow, somewhere, I got the idea that God hated me and the world hated me and I didn't want to live in it and be part of it and I just wanted to check out. And there were periods of time where I just ate anything and everything I wanted to eat in whatever quantity I wanted to eat it in because I had given up. Occasionally I would get flashes of a desire to live and I would try to hunker down and diet, but inevitably I would, I would gain the weight back. And there was something about me that I wondered. Why, after losing weight on a diet, would I pick up the food again? Why did I do that to myself? And I didn't understand why I couldn't stop and why I couldn't stay stopped. Why, after a long period of dieting successfully and losing some weight, why in the world would I do that? Was I crazy? I don't think I was crazy, but what I thought was I was doomed. I actually thought I was doomed. I have many, many memories of being in a situation where a binge had taken place that day to end all binges, and I had eaten my flipping head off, and I'd be in the bathroom, and I'd be cursing myself cursing myself for not having the onions to go ahead and commit suicide. And I would be crying and I'd be washing my hands and I'd be crying because of all the food I had eaten and how sick the food had made me. And within three seconds of getting out of the bathroom, what in the world would I be doing to seek out comfort after the binge that I had just been on, what would I be doing? What would I be seeking out as some sort of a solution? My head would be in the refrigerator with the light shining in my face, looking for something to eat to quash the pain of eating too much food. 
That's insanity. Chapter 3. More about alcoholism. Describes the thinking that precedes the first compulsive bite. Chapter 3. More about alcoholism. Is not a chapter about people who were drunk who couldn't get sober. Chapter 3 is a, is a chapter about people. A man of 30, Jim, Fred, the jaywalker, who were sober and made a decision to pick up liquor again. And that was me. Insanity. It's a chapter that says that the crux, the, the thinking that precedes the first compulsive bite, the thinking that precedes the first drink is what this chapter is about, for that is the crux of the problem. What was I thinking? We're going to examine that this morning, too. And then something happened. In 1979, I came into Overeaters Anonymous. And I came into Overeaters Anonymous, and for my first trip through Overeaters Anonymous, I still clung to the belief that this was about hunkering down on my willpower, hunkering down and staying on my diet. Now, I heard the words, this is not a diet and calories club. I heard the words, spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. I read the big book. I went to meetings, and it didn't sink into my brain what they were saying to me. And I left OA. And I came back a couple of years later with my tail between my legs. And I still didn't really hear what they were saying. And I left again briefly and came back. And I started to hear things. And I started to absorb things that I had never heard or absorbed before. And I got in touch with something that I never knew. And what I never knew was that food is not the problem. What I never understood at all was that for people like me, and me specifically, but people like me as well, food is the solution to the problem. Food is the solution to the problem. I never knew that. Now, if food is the solution to the problem, what is the problem? The problem for people like me, as described in the doctor's opinion in the book Alcoholics Anonymous by Dr. William Duncan Silkworth, the problem is the buildup of normal, everyday human emotion. He says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The problem is the buildup of everyday, normal human emotion. All human beings have fear, happiness, anger, jealousy, loneliness, frustration. All human beings have these emotions. And in a normal human being, they can dissipate these emotions. They can lower the level of these emotions by doing very, very simple things. They can go to the gym. 
They can make love. They can drink a glass of wine. They can play with the dog. They can go on a hike. They can do very simple things, and they can dissipate the level of these emotions to a point where they become manageable, and they can continue living without destroying their lives with food. Not so with me. Because right up there in the emotional side of my brain, there is something called the mental twist. And there is something called the mental blank spot. Now, the mental twist is a part of my brain on the emotional side of my mind that will let me know that when I am feeling lonely, when I'm feeling angry, when I'm feeling happy, when I'm feeling guilty or shame-ridden, that there is a solution that I can go to. And the solution is a Kit Kat bar, Cheetos, what have you, cake, what have you. Now, on the intelligence side of my brain, there is something called intelligence, common sense, that says, no, don't eat that. It's going to kill you. It's going to make you fatter. It's going to drive you further and further away from your dreams. It's going to take you south when you want to go north. But the emotional side of the brain and now the intelligent side of the brain are in conflict because the pain of not eating, the torturous, unrelenting, searing, debilitating pain of not eating is so horrible and so nightmarish that I cannot bear it for another minute. I cannot bear it for another second. And any time there is a conflict between the emotional side of my brain that is demanding the Cheetos and demanding the Kit Kat bar and the intelligence side of the brain that says, don't eat that stuff. It's going to really not give you what you want. The emotional side will call upon the mental blank spot. And the mental blank spot is my built-in forgetter. And the built-in forgetter will communicate with the mental twist. And the built-in forgetter, the mental blank spot, will say, no, we don't, we don't believe that. It will not allow me to bring into consciousness, excuse me, it will not allow me to bring into consciousness what the food does to me. It will only allow me to remember what the food does for me and what the food does for me is beautiful and peaceful and wonderful for about nine seconds. And any time there's that conflict between the emotional and the intelligent, the emotional will defeat the intelligent and I will pick up the Cheetos in search of relief from the intangible, unrelenting, searing, debilitating pain that comes about when I'm not eating. Because when I'm not eating, I feel everything, and I can't bear it. Now, if I can't eat because of the mental twist, and because of the physical allergy 
The physical allergy makes it impossible for me to stop. So what happens every single time, not some of the time, not most of the time, but every single time I pick up Cheetos, Kit Kat bars, Chunky bars, Oreo cookies, whatever it is that I pick up, I have every intention of eating one or two at the most. And I end up eating 50. I end up eating way more than I had intended until I'm sick and I'm in the bathroom and I'm sick to my stomach yet again. Because the physical allergy will not allow me to control the amount I eat once I've started. I have friends that I've known my whole life that do not understand why anybody eats a fifth Oreo cookie. They just don't, they don't understand it. They really don't understand why anybody eats a third or a fourth Oreo cookie. One or two they can understand. Three, four, certainly not five. But in my body, the more I eat, the more I want, the more I want, the more I eat, the more I eat, the more I want, and it's just endless. It's endless. Now, if I can't eat because it's a physical allergy, and I can't keep from eating because of the twist of the mind, I am powerless over food. And that's, that's my condition. I have a mind and a body that condemns me to keep doing the same destructive things over and over and over again and powerless over food. My life is unmanageable. I was 335 pounds as a senior in high school. I was 500 pounds as a sophomore in college. By the time I graduated college, I was in the high fives, low sixes. Every time I hear somebody say, high five, I go, I've weighed that much. And I was 700 pounds by the 80s, uh, late 80s, mid 80s. But, excuse me, I got these facate allergies again. Um, I'm powerless over food. So it begs the question, if I can't eat because of the allergy, and I can't keep from eating because of the twist of the mind, what am I going to do? What if I could find a way to live where my mind does not lock in on that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly from eating an Oreo cookie? What if I could find a way to live where these emotions do not build up to that level where they become toxic enough to knock on the door of the mental twist and the mental twist in search of relief from the intenable pain of not eating will begin the cycle, that death cycle again. What if I could find a way to live where my emotions do not build to that level? What if I could find a way to live where I already feel better? And the process of bringing the necessary power into the equation is called recovery. And that's what this is all about, Charlie Brown. 
This is about substituting the effect of the spiritual awakening as the result of working the steps for the effect of the food, which will give me the same ease and comfort, but better. Because what I'm trading is, because the food only lasts about seven, eight seconds, I'm trading happiness and contentment for momentary pleasure. I would rather have happiness and contentment than momentary pleasure. And the process of doing that must come from a power greater than myself. And that is a force, a power that I choose to call God. Now, I struggled with this idea of God, as many do. I felt God screwed me over. He didn't give me a pony. He didn't give me the girl for my dream of Jeannie. He didn't give me Robin Laura Petrie for parents. I got Max and Virginia Grabowski. Didn't seem very fair to me. But now I have a beautiful relationship with that power that I choose to call God. I have that constant companionship, but I have to work at it every single day. Now, there are people on this line that will never weigh 700 pounds. There are people on this line that are anorexics. They get that same sense of ease and comfort by restricting the amount of food they eat. And there are people on this line that I know well that are bulimics. They will load themselves up with massive quantities of food and purge it. There's exercise bulimics, and then there's the other kind of bulimics who stick their head in the toilet. And all of us have the same twist of the mind, allergy of the body, and the same solution. But we just manifest in different ways. That's all. To talk about the solution to talk about what we're going to do about this. I'm going to call upon one of the most articulate, intelligent, and wonderful guys I know, and he comes from the greatest city in the world, Chicago, Illinois, and I'm going to turn this over to my friend Larry Kay, who's now going to talk about the solution to this insidious problem. Larry, it's all yours, buddy. <laughs> oh, Harlan, you you had me laughing there with with uh, the Petries and uh, all that stuff. <laughs> uh, my friend from Chicago. He's always going to be from Chicago. Yeah, he's not from he's he's from Arizona, but he's he's a Chicago boy. It's in his heart. Harlan, thanks so much uh, for that introduction. Okay, so Harlan, he he spoke about the the buildup of normal human emotion, and that what the food, you know, this heroin. That's what it is for me. It's, it's heroin. I've never done heroin, but, but that's what it is. What it does for people like us is it gives us this relief. And when, when we're not eating, we feel everything, and we can't bear that, those feelings. And what I want to tell you is this program of action doesn't teach one how to manage your emotions better or to control, I should say, to control your inner emotions better. No, we have no power. We got no shot. We are condemned, as Harlan said. But what the program of action does, and I didn't understand this coming into this program because I didn't come to this program to have a spiritual awakening. That's not 
why I came here. But nonetheless, that is what happened. Now, what this program of action does is it brings you into alignment with the higher power of your own understanding, with your creator, so that you can find a way to live happy, peaceful, comfortable. I'm comfortable in my own skin today by the grace of God. And with God's grace, I'll have the opportunity to hopefully in the next 30 minutes or so be of service to you, um, you know, to, to gain more clarity around some of these concepts. And Harlan laid out the problem so clearly. You know, and the, and the second concept is if, if there is a problem, what is the solution to the problem? And like Leah shared, you know, then the third concept is how in the world are we going to bring this solution to light? How do you make that solution happen? Which, of course, is, is through deliberate action. You know, in step two, the principle of the second step is hope. And, you know, if you turn to, to page two in the chapter entitled Bill's Story, if you happen to have the big book, you know, so now that we understand our problem from the doctor's opinion, you know, we, we know that we have this twofold nature of this illness. We're now going to seek a solution to our problem. And, you know, it's interesting, about halfway through Bill's story, you know, we understand the problem and, you know, and they present to the reader an example of a person who has sought the solution. And if we, if we see what happened here, you know, Bill was starting to drink to oblivion. And he's now a hopeless, unmanageable drunk. And one day, Bill gets a call from his old drinking buddy, Ebby Thatcher. And Ebby, of course, has been involved with the, you know, the Oxford group of the day and part of that uh, temperance society at that point. And Ebby says, listen, I, I've stopped drinking. You know, and I, and I want to come over and talk to you. And, and Bill basically thinks, yeah, right, you know, you stopped drinking. Yeah, sure, come on over. I can use some company. I've got a half a bottle of gin. Sure, let's, let's chat. And upon opening the door, you know, what Bill sees, he sees something in Ebby that has fundamentally shifted. This guy's different. And the book says he was fresh-skinned and he was glowing. And there was something different in his deportment, in his demeanor that, that told Bill, this guy seems to have found something. And so Ebby comes in and, and Bill offers him a drink. And Ebby, of course, declines. Uh, and, and, and Bill's drinking. And Ebby, you know, starts to explain to Bill the hope he's found. And and how in the heck he stopped drinking and what he's doing in the Oxford group. And apparently, for the most part, you know, Bill likes what he's hearing. And it's, it's a hopeful message thus far until, you know, like many of us, we come into the room, until Ebby says something that essentially, kick, you know, kicks Bill out of the, the conversation. And if you look at page 12, that first full paragraph, it says, despite the living example of my friend, there remained in me vestiges of my old prejudice. The word God still aroused a certain antipathy. When the thought was expressed that there might be a God personal to me, this feeling was intensified. I didn't like the idea. See, I, I came in the room. I didn't like the idea much either. And Bill goes on to say, I could go for such conceptions as creative intelligence, universal mind, or spirit of nature. But he resisted the thought of a czar of the heavens, however loving his way may be. And I have since talked with scores of men who felt the same way. And then I think what Ebby did was, was, was really a miracle because cause in that moment, and I, I believe this whole book is divine in nature, written by God. Harlan talks about that. I believe the same thing. I've come to believe that. It says, my friend suggested what then seemed a novel idea. He said, hey, why don't you choose your own conception of God? 
you because Bill had trepidation as perhaps you've had. I know I had about the idea of religion. He was an agnostic at best. He had a certain antipathy, a hostility, and that feeling was intensified. It was amplified. It triggered him. And he rejected the thought of this sort of king, you know, with the beard and the staff and the whole deal. No good for him. So two things. One, Ebby is talking to Bill, and Bill likes what he's hearing. But two, Ebby mentions God and religion, and Bill says, check, please. You know, and that's what many of us do. He's also saying, you know, I've, I've since talked to scores of men who feel exactly the same way. So, you know, it's, it's not unusual for someone to come into OA and struggle with the whole God thing. Very common indeed. So what happens, Abby presents Bill with this rather novel uh, proposition, and he suggests, why don't you choose your own conception of God? You know, we, we have to recognize that if, if lack of power was our problem, and that's so clear, it's so clear in the big book, lack of power, I am powerless. I cannot control this thing. I want to put the syringe down. I don't want to wrap the band around my arm, if you will, and inject myself, right? I don't want, like Harlan said, I don't want to eat the Kit Kat bar. It's killing me physically. It was killing me certainly emotionally. Spiritually, forget about it. I was shut off completely. He doesn't want to do it. But we're driven. We're driven back. So, you know, interesting that in the lines before that, Bill even states various conceptions of a higher power that he's okay with, creative intelligence, universal mind, spirit of nature. And, you know, he says, that statement hit me hard. It melted the icy intellectual mountain in whose shadow I had lived and shivered many years. And I stood in the sunlight at last. So it was only a matter of willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. And so there was this mountain of ice between Bill and the sunlight of the spirit. And I felt that that mountain of ice too, that barrier that kept me blocked off from my higher power, this icy intellectual mountain. And I've built an icy mountain of intellect that stood in the way of me seeing the truth because, you see, I looked good on paper and I had this, this intellect, God-given, you know, perhaps, and it was developed and I was going to think my way out of this problem. I was going to read my way out of this problem. And it was never to be. There was no amount of literature, textbooks, uh, you know, psychological uh, understanding to understand the mechanisms of the mind that for me would enable me to control this thing. I was powerless. And this program is not about science. It's not about science. It is a spiritual program. The second step question is, is it possible? Is it possible? Is there a chance that there is some power greater than you, some energy more powerful than you, that is more powerful than your thoughts and your problems? And if you can say, if anyone can say, yeah, you know, anything's possible, that's your second step. In fact, that is all there is to the second step. And again, that doesn't have to be all there is to the second step for you. You can make this more complicated if you want to, but you certainly don't have to. And the idea that to do the second step, that you need to know who or what your higher power is, crazy. Now, if you do know who your higher power is, terrific. If you've known the God of your understanding since the age of five, and that works for you, terrific. That's extra credit. It may indeed make your path easier. 
but that is not a lot of people's experience coming into program. See, if you'd like to do a second step, it's not as complicated as we might think. And, and the essential uh, questions that we, that we pose is if you, by, if you have identified in as a compulsive overeater, and I did, I couldn't stay stopped. I've stopped thousands of times, I just couldn't stay stopped. You know, can I say that I, I either currently believe that there is a higher power or I'm willing to believe that there is a higher power? And if I can raise my hand to that, I'm now on to step three. Make no mistake about it. You know what's wrong with you, laid out in the doctor's opinion. That's why we have to understand the doctor's opinion of the rest of the book is not going to make sense. So you know that your problem is lack of power. That is your dilemma. And that your solution is accessing that power, a power greater than human power, right? And in speaking about the solution, you know, allow me to draw your attention to page 62 of the big book. Page 62 in the big book, the first paragraph, it says, selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. We step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that at some time in the past, we have made decisions based on self which later placed us in a position to be hurt. So we know that in the first step, you know what our problem is. Our problem is lack of power. That is our dilemma. In step two, we learn that if we're powerless, gaining access to that power greater than ourselves is a solution. And you know, coming into this program, it's funny. I don't know about you, but how many have heard that this is a selfish program? perhaps a lot of us, and it's sort of remarkable, you know. Uh, so the way we're going to get rid of this selfishness that can ultimately kill you is with this selfish program, madness. <laughs> but you're going you're gonna to hear it every day in the rooms. This is, a self, uh, this is a selfish program. No, this is a selfless program. To solve a selfish problem, we're going to need a selfless solution. And when we make an affirmative declaration in the third step, to move forward with the actions which are going to untether you from a self-centered existence. You know, we're offering ourselves to God to build with us and do with us as God wishes. Relieve us of the bondage of self that we may better do your will. Take away our difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those that we would help of your power, your love, your way of life. Now, I want to, I, you know, in the time had I want to, I, I, I would like to, uh, you know, there's been a lot of unfortunate watering down of our basic message over the course of time uh, that AA and OA has been in existence, and there's, there's kind of leaked into our rooms an unbelievable amount of misinformation around the, the concepts of the problem, the solution, and, of course, how to bring that solution to light. And see, the problem with this misinformation, this erroneous information, considering we are dealing with a life-or-death problem, Harlan, for example, just picking on my friend, would be dead. I mean, let's call it what it is. Harlan would be dead. And when it comes to compulsive overeating and other addictions, that erroneous information <clears throat> that, are, that is in our room serves to do more than just be a detriment to you. Frankly, it may serve in killing you. It's deadly information. And I, I want to just quickly take you back to the 1940s because our history is, is fundamentally important to going forward. If you walked into the rooms in 1940, 
You walk into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and you're sick and suffering and you're, you're, you're in the gutter of life dying from untreated alcoholism and you meander in for the first time, here's basically what you could have expected to happen. You would have been welcomed upon entering, right? You would have uh, been embraced upon entering. You would have been introduced to all the members of that respective group. And then they would have assigned you a sharing partner. So you would have been linked up with somebody, a sharing partner, by the way, uh, you know, means the same exact thing as a sponsor. We didn't have the, the same terminology back then, but that's why you don't see the word sponsor appear in the big book. But this, this whole notion of searching out for somebody, it didn't exist then. And they would have linked you up with a sharing partner, and that sharing par partner would have sat you down, and, and basically they would have told you the following. They would have said, look, I'm going to be your advocate over the course of four sessions that are going to take place over the course of four weeks, about one hour per week. And what's going to happen tonight is we're going to go over the first three steps. So tonight you're going to find out what's wrong with you in step one. You're going to find out what the solution to what is wrong with you in step two and then we're going to ask you if you'd like to make an affirmative declaration in step three based on your understanding of your problem and the solution to your problem and that you're ready to get to work. And then next week, assuming you come back, you may or may not come back, but if you come back, we're going to go over steps four and five. And we're going to talk about a searching and fearless moral inventory. And the following week, you'll complete your inventory. Then you and I will sit down and you'll complete step five with me. And then when you come back the following week, we'll go over steps six, seven, eight, nine. See how quickly this was moving back in the 1940s? You will do your eighth step list and you will begin doing your ninth step amends. And when you come back during, you know, the, that very last week, you'll begin to practice steps 10, 11, and 12, at which point you will be a recovered alcoholic. And you will learn how to maintain and grow what you've been given in the program of recovery. And then naturally, you're going to become a sharing partner for others. And of course, you know, at that point in the discussion, you had the opportunity to stay for the meeting to begin the process immediately, or you were going to run like hell and go back to the disease. It was certainly your choice, right? Now, that was unequivocally what was going on for the first 25 years in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's how the message was carried to suffering alcoholics. And that was indeed how the message was developed and put together by our pioneers, the co-founders, Bill and Bob and others, and which is another way of saying that is how this was intended to be done. Not how it has to be done, but certainly how it was meant to be done. Now, here we are in November 2016, and you're a sick and suffering compulsive reader. You're out there in Minnesota, right? You've walked in the room. You're fresh off a binge of Snicker bars and milkshakes and ding-dongs and Doritos, right? And Harlan and I, Chicago-style pizza and the whole deal. And clearly, you're dying from this untreated disease. Let's, let's make no bones about it. Whether you're vomiting in a stall in the bathroom or you're binging your brains out, you're dying of this untreated disease. And as you wander into the OA meeting for the first time, you may or may not be welcomed, depending on the meeting. They may or may not realize you're a new person. They may have a newcomer greeter. They might not. There may be no one looking out for such a thing. And there's, now there's a very decent chance that you may come into the room. You know, you're, you're in the back of the room there in Minnesota, and you find a seat in the back, and you have no idea what the hell is going on. And depending on what kind of meeting it is, and, and recognizing that topic and discussion meetings outnumber literature meetings, I'm told, 
you know, literature meetings, big book studies. I think it's like seven to one. Chances are you're going to hear someone's story, which may or may not be interesting to you. You may identify with it. You may not. You may hear of things like sexual abuse, divorce, foreclosure on a home, unemployment, uh, battle with relapse, all the things, right? And depending on the meeting, they may talk about the 12 steps. You may hear nothing about the 12 steps. Depending upon the meeting, they may talk about sponsorship. They may not talk about sponsorship. And if they do talk about sponsorship, you may start the process of wandering around from Minneapolis to Miami or from Anchorage to Amarillo looking for a sponsor, and who knows how long that'll take. And when you eventually find that sponsor, very nice person, it's very possible that your sponsor will tell you that the 12 steps, which can save your life, will take upwards of a year or more to work, during which time there is a, indeed a very good chance that you will relapse or die. Uh, you know, sign on the dotted line here, initial there and there and there. You know, I'm not suggesting that that's what's going on in every OA meeting, right? Because I love OA. It saved my life. But I am definitely suggesting that's what's going on in most of them these days. So over the course of the first 25 years in our AA history, we maintained an absolutely astonishing rate of recovery. And in the last 25 years, if we're honest with ourselves, the rate of recovery not so good. It's gone into the dumper. Not, not, not good in terms of our recovery rates in, in OA. Well-intentioned, beautiful, wonderful people, of course, compassionate. But it's amazing if we can pull off a, maybe a 3 to 5% rate of recovery in OA in a given year. We are killing more people than we are saving. It's troubling indeed. Now, we're transcending that. We're trying to transcend that. So in focusing on the solution this morning, of getting back to the basics required to get well. We need to, to go to the source, the, the textbook. You know, I've, I've been a professor for a number of years in a particular discipline, and, and we have a textbook. And I think I'm on the 15th edition of the textbook uh, for, you know, different psychology classes, for an introduction to psychology class. And that's why would I be on the 15th edition? Well, it makes perfect sense because information changes. New things come along and uh, new research and new data and, and things change. And so we, they update the additions. Now, when we look at our big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, that is the program of action, the first 164 pages. That's the program of action. That text, that textbook, our primary text has not changed. And why is that? Why are we not on the 15th edition of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous? Why are we not changing? When I came into OA, I wanted to rewrite the big book, you know, thought I knew, right? It hasn't changed. You know why? Because it works. The spiritual toolkit, these instructions followed precisely in sequence, it works. Because I really thought at one time that OA's solution to compulsive overeating was don't eat, Larry, just don't eat and go to meetings. Because that's what I heard constantly. And after my experience showed me that there's a big difference between not eating and not eating and being happy about it, I started to become convinced that it was the change effectuated by working the steps in sequence quickly, right? We got to move through it quickly. That produced an, the essential psychic change that brought me into alignment with my higher power. And that took grit, resilience, or a certain resolve 
and consistency. And I didn't have it. Five years, eight sponsors. Lots, I mean, relapse. Forget relapse. I never was out of the heroin for long. I think that it's important to note there's a big difference between the fellowship and the program. Both are important. We got, we got essentially two legs, right? We got the fellowship and we got the program. And the fellowship, the meetings, the stories, the interaction with other OA members, uh, calling your sponsor, your food plan, you know, you know, calling in your food plan, all these things, part of the fellowship. It's fellowship. And it's, it's necessary and critical. But it's never, it wasn't designed to get you well. It was merely designed, the tools within the fellowship were designed from the, very, from the outset of this program to support you while you get well. They were designed to support you while you get well. In order to access that power, we use the program. The program is found in the first 164 pages of the big book. You know, a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession that Harlan talked about to eat. There's a reason why Harlan or me or anybody on this line who's recovered, not cured, we have the allergy, but it is recovered today by the grace of God. There's a reason why Harlan doesn't eat Kit Kat bars anymore. 700 pounds, what are you kidding me? How, how, how could that person stop eating Kit Kat bars? Because he doesn't want them anymore. The obsession has been driven out as the result of these steps. The same obsession that was driven out for, for, from Ebby, from you know, Bill Wilson, Dr. Bob, and right on up connecting the dots to you and I today. It's, it, he is not, if Harlan was holding his breath underwater, dieting with group support, a man that used to be 700 pounds would not be able to stay uh, sober for very long, right? And I wouldn't either, because I tried. Oh, how I tried. Oh, how I wanted to to stop eating the Skittles. I wanted to, but I couldn't. So we, uh, you know, if practice is a way of life, that obsession to eat is removed. And that buildup of emotion, we can be comfortable in our own skin today. I still have absolutely, the storm visits me. There's death, there's sickness, there's financial insecurity, there's all the things, but Today, when the obsession was lifted, I've been changed by this program. And if we rely on the text, we see in the chapter, there is a solution on page 17. It says, the tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. There is a solution. And, you know, this solution, you know, we moved in step one from this unmitigated despair, powerlessness. We could not overcome our compulsive reading by ourselves. And in step two, we begin to find hope and an aspiration for a better life. We, we find access to a power greater than ourselves, restoring us to sanity. And my personal concept of a higher power afforded me and anyone an excellent shot at living, at complete redemption through these actions. And the big book promises us that these deliberate actions in the working of the 12 steps offers everyone deliverance from the barriers that keep us from our higher power, being brought into alignment with our creator. And I'll, I'm, I'm going to wrap in a, in, in a bit here, but I want to speak to this sort of inconvenient truth and see if this lands for you, this inconvenient truth, see if it resonates on some level. You know, regardless of your current belief in a higher power, 
regardless of your current commitment or lack of commitment to a particular theology, because this isn't about religion, spirituality, religion, different things. Regardless of that, the bottom line is this. Whether a compulsive reader comes to the rooms believing in God or not believing in God, you know, it really doesn't particularly matter. If you're continuing to binge your brains out, if you're out there in Minnesota or New York or California or wherever you are, and you've just been binging your brains out, you're obviously missing something, right? You're missing something. And on page 25, it says, I'm going to wrap with this, it says there is a solution. And it says almost none of us liked the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, which this process requires. It requires it for successful consummation. But we saw that it really worked in others, and we had come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living it. When, therefore, we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us, uh, for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. We have found much of heaven, and we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we had not even dreamed. And that's what has happened to me, you know. Um, when I joined this program, I was stuck in the quicksand, and I was thrashing about and the more I thrashed about, I, went down, I was going down faster. I was trying harder to save myself. And the fourth dimension, the spiritual dimension, is this intuitive sense of knowing what to do. It is divine in nature, and we have surrendered to our own conception of God. <clears throat> and in so doing, we are given direction and mastery in life, not perfection. So the, you, we work these steps. They're not plateaus. We work them quickly. We work them thoroughly but you couldn't work them perfectly if you tried because you're human. And I, I, I am grateful for this, grateful for Overeaters Anonymous. I am grateful for, grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous. And with that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thank you very much, Larry and Harlan, for speaking about the problem and the solution this morning. Thank you for illuminating a path from the dark world of compulsive overeating to a life of happiness, contentment, and fulfillment. Contact information for Harlan and Larry will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. We are now going to transition to questions. If you have a question for either one of our speakers this morning, press star 1 to unmute and identify yourself, please. I'm Carol, a compulsive overeater. My question is one moment, Carol. Let's, see, uh, let's catch other people as well. One moment, Carol. Anyone else? Nancy G. from Virginia. Nancy G. Anne Marie M. Anne Marie. Carolyn J. Judy K. from Wisconsin. Okay. Okay. I, I didn't get the last. I got Sue B., Judy K., and I'm not catching another voice. Bev, Bev. Okay. All right. Let's start with those. Everybody, please mute except for Carol. Thank you. Thank you very much. Carol, go ahead. My question is this. In our area, most of our groups are very small. How do you bring in a new one that comes in now and then a new one that comes in two months from now or three months from now quickly through this program? 
Um, who are you addressing? Oh, uh, that would be Larry. Larry talked about the solution. Go ahead, Larry. Uh, I'm, I'm, Harlan, I'm going to defer to my elders. They say respect your elders. So. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> you go. <laughs> Good Lord. Carol, it's promised in the book that if you bring the message of recovery to your meetings, a fellowship will spring up around you. Give God a chance. Bring the message of the big book to the meeting. Don't water it down. Don't start skiing it up with other things that are just narishkeit. Narishkeit is foolishness. It's a Yiddish word for foolishness. Stick to the pure message of the big book and follow those instructions and you will bring people through quickly. And since you're on the subject of the OA birthday, which I'm so glad you asked about, I'm going to give you some information because I really appreciate that you asked me about the birthday. The birthday is the 13th, 14th, and 15th of January 2017 in Los Angeles, California. There are many, many visionaries coming, including all of the people that you hear heard on the line, this, both of the people that you heard on the line this morning. It is $40 to register for the convention until the day after Thanksgiving. Uh, and then it's going to go up a little bit. There's going to be a great big book study. I'm not doing it this year, but we have a friend from Winnipeg, Canada, that many of you know. He's doing the big book study this year. For more information, go to oabirthday.com. And for visionaries only, to ask questions, find roommates, there is another website that has been set up just for the visionaries, and it's called oabirthday.proboards.com. I'll give you that again. OA birthday dot OA birthday one word dot proboards one word dot com. I'm going to be in Los Angeles. I know Larry's going to be in Los Angeles. I know there are many many people on this line that are going to be there, and we hope to see you there soon. And Carol, I'm so glad you asked about the birthday. That's great. But the the answer to your first question is bring them consult one page one fifty nine the bottom. Bring the message, and the fellowship will spring up around you. Thanks. Thank you, Carol. Nancy G. Hi, this is Nancy G. Um, my question is to either one of you. Um, there's a lot of fear and resentment involved right now with, um, you know, the, the whole political process, results maybe even, et cetera. And I, I myself went downhill for a little bit and wasn't able to um, really help anyone. But I've, I've had the um, privilege of talking to a lot of friends um, in OA, within OA, and, um, and actually outside of OA as well. Um, how do you guys work through all those fears when you it's, – it's an overwhelming for yourself but also for other people when we are – dealing with a lot of fear and, and some resentment, but primarily fear. I, I go to, you know, the um, oabigbook.info and, and then just work through that myself and with other OAers. Um, but I just wanted to hear a little bit about you guys in, in an overwhelming amount of fear that there is going around in the country. And, and how do you guys, you know, you guys sound great. How do you guys deal with that? Well, I'll Larry. jump in there, and I'm sure. Oh. Thanks, Harlan. Um, you know, uh, 
on, on page 84, I mean, this is my design for living. This is my instruction manual. So, um, you know, I, I have lots of fears that, cr that crop up. Um, I wasn't rendered perfect. I wasn't sprinkled with pixie dust, I can tell you that. And it tells me on page 84, uh, let's see, one, two paragraphs down, it says, continue to watch. This is step 10, you know, because I, I, I practice these principles to the best of my ability. I'm not a saint, but continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. Yeah, that fear, that evil and corroding threat, right? And it, it has come up for a lot of people. And it tells me very specifically when these crop up. You notice it doesn't say if they crop up. When these crop up, because, they're, oh, they're going to. They do for me. What I do is I, I follow these instructions. We ask God to at once to remove them. So that's what I do. I discuss them with someone immediately uh, and make amends quickly if I've harmed anyone. And I don't, I don't call someone to commiserate, uh, but I, I, I get it out of my head and I discuss it with someone immediately. And if I've harmed anyone as a result of that fear, um, I make amends uh, immediately. And, and this is a big one that I think sometimes uh, uh, folks can miss, is then we resolutely, which I believe means pretty darn quickly, we re resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. And here's my experience. I'd like to hear Harlan's, but my experience um, is that when, when I do those things and I follow those instructions, when, when those fears come up, you know what they do is they, they begin to, it begins to mitigate or lessen that fear particularly when I turn my thoughts to someone else I can help. And I remember just very quickly, uh, uh, actually, he probably doesn't remember, but it, it was years ago, a few years ago, uh, calling Harlan and, and asking about working with others. And he, he said, uh, tell you what, turn to page 90, uh, 97. Um, and I did. And in working with others, you know, it said, never avoid these responsibilities, but be sure you're doing the right thing if you assume them. Helping others is the foundation stone of your recovery. A kindly act once in a while isn't enough. You have to act the Good Samaritan every day. So in the midst of my fear, when I turn to that, cor you know, that cornerstone of my recovery, which is helping others, the fears tend to lessen. So that's, I hope that's helpful. Harlan, I don't know about you. Okay, I'll, I'll just jump in there real briefly, Nancy. Thank you for the question because I've been fielding a lot of 10-step calls about the political arena of late. I've got a magnitude 10 tsunami going on in my head and a magnitude 10 earthquake going on in my, in my body. I have to keep my eyes on my own paper. I have my own work to do. I am not going to get embroiled in outside issues because it is the death of me. I love a good controversy. I love a good distraction. I have work to do on my own self. I have step two that says I have come to believe, I came to believe that a power greater than myself would restore me to sanity. If I do my work of my program and my business and I am a friend to my friends and I am a messenger of this recovery over the next four years, 10 years, or 100 years, if I am a person who lives this program, I don't care who the dog catcher is, the mayor is, the governor is, the, pres the president is, I am going to be just fine. If I don't work my program, my life will be ripped from me in a way that nobody could have done because this disease 
will beat me down. This disease is mind over matter. It doesn't mind ripping me apart and disgracing me in every way that a human being can be disgraced and degraded. And and I don't matter. So I don't have room in my head for that stuff. It's just I I have too much work in front of me to do. And that's, that's my answer. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy G., for your question. Anne Marie M. Thank you, Leah, for your um, service very much. And both of you, I, I thank you for the clear message that I heard that, you know, it's definitely not the food, the weight, the self-image. Um, it's the emotions, the human emotions. Um, my question is, um, I, I guess I, I compare myself to Fred, not a cloud in the sky. I don't feel any emotion. I just hear the thought I just know the feeling I feel is, or is it a thought? I don't know if it's a feeling or a thought. I'm so messed up. I just want something to eat. I just want to munch on something. I just want some comfort. Nothing else has bothered me. And so I don't know if I could say, oh, I just had an argument with someone. I need to do a 10-step on that. And I do the 10, you know, that has happened. And, and and I have, you know, and it's resolved, but that doesn't happen most of the time. It's just I want some comfort for something. And I don't even know what I want comfort from. I mean, like, there's nothing that's happened. So I don't know if either one of you can relate to that. And I appreciate an answer from both of you if you, if you could. Thank you. Okay. Larry, you want to go first? Sure, sure. I'll, I'll jump in there. And Marie, uh, listen, the, yeah, I, I can relate to that. You know, as long as I had, and I don't know where you're where you're at exactly, Anne Marie. Uh, this it's a heck of a thing, uh, this untreated condition. You know, and that's why the doctor's opinion was so important. You know, to understanding my my condition. You know, the the allergy of the body, of course, but then the obsession of the mind. So it, no, it never came into my mind. Um, uh, you know, I, I didn't feelings. I didn't I didn't know from feelings. They were always numbed out. So I couldn't decipher from one feeling to the other feeling. Um, so I, I, I do hear what you say resonates with me. What I would tell you, and I would tell this to anybody, is when we detach from the outcome of this program and we work these steps precisely, we begin to, we begin to experience a change. And my spiritual awakening, my psychic change unfolded. It was certainly of the educational variety. It was not a white, you know, light sort of flash like Bill Wilson had. Um, and so what I can tell you is that if you, you know, proceed through the steps, no matter how many times you've worked through them, if you proceed through them in sequence, you will experience a change. And when the cloud is lifted, then for the first time, I began to be able to parse out different feelings because truthfully, I was feeling for the first time. Before that, I couldn't make sense, heads or tails of what I was feeling, what I wasn't feeling. So my my encouragement to you would be to move through the process, move through the process, you know, move through it quickly but thoroughly, and uh, and watch the unfolding of the psychic change. Then you'll be telling us what it's like. You'll be telling us what it's like. It's an experiential program. So with that, I'll pass Harwin. 
Uh, Anne-Marie, thank you, Larry. I couldn't agree with Larry more. If you go through the process, you will have a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. You will be able to tell the difference between fear and dishonesty. You will be able to tell the difference between anger and selfishness. You will just know these things inherently, and it only comes through the doing of the work. Um, and in having that spiritual awakening, Anne-Marie, as a result of the steps, you are going to see miracles beyond your wildest imagination, beyond your wildest dreams, and it will settle these questions for you. And when you start working with other people, you're going to get this question from them, and this will probably be, I'm betting, be the answer you give to them. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks, Anne-Marie. Sue B., Star one to unmute, Sue. All right, perhaps she had to step away. Judy Kay. Good morning. Thank you, uh, Judy Kay, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. Um, thank you, Harlan and Larry, for your great talk. I have a question which either one of you can answer. <coughs> I understand we're not cured. I know I will always have this physical allergy and the mental obsession. Uh, in the, I can't cite the place in the big book, but I think it says it was lifted right out of us. So the thing that I always wonder then is, is if the mental obsession has been in fact lifted out of me, which means it's gone, then, then it can, but it can also return if I don't do this, if I don't work the steps. So how is, I, I like to think of it as the mental obsession maybe being subdued or, or laid to rest, but not lifted out of me. Does, do, do any of you, have, either of you have a comment on that? You want to go first, Larry? Or? No, no, go ahead, Harlan. Okay. It is never lifted out of you, Judy, and I better see you in Los Angeles. I'm just going to look up. I'm looking up the weather in Door County, Wisconsin. It's 45 degrees, and I'm saying a silent prayer that I'm not there with you. I'd be freezing myself <laughs> off. But anyway, um, it is never out of you. It is temporarily subdued. I, I'm reticent to use the word arrested, but it is temporarily, based on my spiritual fitness, subdued. It will come back. If I stop doing these steps, if I start harboring fear, if I start harboring resentment, selfishness, dishonesty, guilt, shame, remorse, all these various things, you can bet your life that I will be a gold star customer of Nabisco once again. And that is not something that I want, so I keep in fit spiritual condition. But the mental twist is never removed. It is temporarily subdued based on my spiritual fitness, my spiritual condition. And I better work the steps like my hair is on fire, and that's what I do. Larry? <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with Harlan. You know, it says, uh, you know, uh, Judy, you, you've read this before, heard it read on page 85. It, you know, as we're transitioning here in, in step 10, it is easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. And it, it warns me, you know, um, 
Judy, Larry, you're headed for trouble if you do, because alcohol is a, is a subtle foe. We're not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all our activities. Um, so the way, the way I would describe it, too, uh, it might not be a great, um, a great analogy, but I, I, I speak of it in terms of remission. You know, my condition, my, my cancer uh, is in remission. Uh, you know, contingent upon me remaining in fit spiritual condition, which I do by, to the best of my ability, working steps 10, 11, and 12. And I can tell you for me, um, I can only speak for myself, is that uh, it's not hard. It's not hard to do it. I work hard with it, but it is not, it's a joy. I, I'd never thought that was possible, Judy, but it is an absolute joy to carry this message. Now, it's inconvenient at times. You know, you can get calls anytime. You can, you know, when, when, when you work intensely with others and cracking up with this big book, it's inconvenient. But that is the insurance. And I don't, you know what it is for me too, Judy? I don't walk waiting for the shoe to drop. And I didn't think my way into that condition of not fearing, you know, the shoe dropping, you know. I think that just evolved and continues to evolve. There's a, there's a, um, a quiet confidence that God has given me that I never had before. And that's part of the progression, the beautiful progression of the spiritual awakening, the unfolding of this. It gets better. I had a sponsor once that told me, Larry, it gets better. And I thought, well, you know, easy for you to say. And you know what? He was absolutely right. It gets better. So I hope that helps. Yes. Thank you, both of you. That hit the nail on the head, and I appreciate it. That's been a dilemma that I've just pondered over and over. So thank you very much. Thank you, Judy Kay. Bev. Hi. Can you hear me all right? We can. All right. I'm beginning to work with a new uh, member of Overeaters Anonymous. And we're we're on step one, of course, and I just want to do my best, of course. Uh, but how do I really help her realize if she is a compulsive overeater or not? Thanks. Harlan, you t- take that one. <laughs> okay. Well, it says the instruction in Chapter 7 is get something of his history. What I do is I have them do a food history. Not everybody that comes in the doors of Overeaters Anonymous or is in the doors of Overeaters Anonymous is a compulsive overeater. There are many among us who do not have the physical allergy and they do not have the mental twist. There are people in these rooms that have body dysmorphic disorder. There are people in these rooms that saw on television uh, a commercial that said if they lost 10 pounds or 20 pounds that their life would be magically transformed and they'd get to go on TV shows or something, whatever, and they come into the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous and we hug them and we tell them to keep coming back and we keep you know, telling them how wonderful they are. And so not everybody that comes in is a compulsive overeater. But what I do is I have them write out their history of dieting and failing. And I, or I, you know, I talk to them too. Do they have identification with what we're talking about here? Do they identify with an inability to stop once they started? Just like what we were talking about this morning, what Larry and I have covered this morning. Do they identify? with the constant thinking about food above all else. What is the definition of obsession? Now, I'm reticent to use the 
term mental obsession because it's not a big book term. It's a term that Bill started using after the big book was published. But what, let's, let's go to that for just a minute. What is an obsession? An obsession is a thought which pushes aside all thought to the contrary. Do they relate to that? Do they think about food in an unnatural way? And do they react physically to the food once it's inside their body like we do? And if they have the obsession and they have the, or they have the twist of the mind, excuse me, and they have that physical allergy, then they are compulsive overeaters. If they do not have that, then they are not. And some of the people that come in do not have it, and some do. And that's, that's my answer. That's all I got. Yeah, I'll, I'll just, you. I'll just pick, yeah, I'll just piggyback on that. Um, yeah, yeah, I do that as well. You know, you, you can be helpful to that person, you know, allow them to, to go through their, their history. And identification um, is, is such a critical component of this here. But remember, you know, that, that, that probably no human power could relieve, you know, that person of their alcoholism, right? And, and sometimes for me, it's just a matter of remembering that I'm a human power, you're a human power. We are armed with the facts about ourselves. If that person can identify in with that and the classification of the alcoholic, you know, because they could be a moderate drinker, they could be a hard drinker, you know, but, but, but what is it that, you know, about the real alcoholic, the person that, you know, the real compulsive overeater? And that identification process can take some time for some people, but, you know, the sooner they can, you know, they can get to the realization if they have this thing, the quicker then they will be desperate, you know, get to that level of desperation to be willing to work through the rest of the steps. So I hope that helps. Thank you, Bev. Yes, thank you. Who else has a question this morning? Star one to unmute to identify Carol- yourself. Carolyn SH. Carolyn SH. Gladys F. Gladys. Lisa P. Lisa P. Anyone else? All right, let's start with Carolyn S.H., please. Hi, good morning. Thank you, Leah. Sorry I interrupted you there and spoke over you. Thank you so much for your service. Um, Harlan and Larry, thank you so much. Um, And my question um, is uh, regarding what what you said, Larry, um, but... Um, if you both want to answer, that would be that would be lovely. And it's about the speed of the process. And um, Larry, you're talking about how they used to do it very quickly. And what would your advice be to um, someone? And I'm in this camp, and I know a lot of people who are in this camp who have done the steps, but not really quickly, and who are either in step nine or in step ten. Um, and it, if there's something not quite right, like there's abstinence, um, but if we're not living in the fourth dimension or it doesn't feel that way, would you suggest going all the way back and doing it quickly or just picking up the pace? Like what, I don't know if my question is clear, how would you determine um, where to go if you've done the steps but in a slow way? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, um, 
you know, for me, the reason why there's, we're in a race for time here, and I think sometimes, though, you know, there's because I'm a corner cutter. I have been my whole life, you know, and, um, and so there's this notion, and there's also actually, even as a corner cutter, there's, a, there's a, some degree of perfectionism, too, which is, seems paradoxical, but, but nonetheless, that's, that exists. So uh, to, to, to go specifically to your question, you know, we're in a race for time. Because this untreated condition, it's not if we're going to pick up. Oh, oh, we're going to pick up. <laughs> um, as long as, because what we are doing when we have an untreated condition is we are, we have that white knuckled abstinence. And we, you know, Harlan has said many times, you know, we are, you know, we are powerless, but we are not helpless. We have to be willing to go through a period of uncomfortability, uh, but we have to do it quickly. And I think a lot of times when you, when, you know, people walk into the rooms, some 12-step rooms, and, you know, there's an abuse of power, I think, in my opinion. That's just one addict's opinion. Because the sponsor is dictating very slow terms. Maybe they've – and I think uh, they're doing a disservice um, to the person if we're not uh, taking them through the steps thoroughly but very quickly because eventually I'm going to pick up my syringe. Uh, eventually there's going to, because of the obsession of the mind, I'm going to pick up the syringe and I'm going to wrap that band around my arm and it's going to be about the best idea I had all day. So if one, to your question, if one, you know, still recognizes that there's some incongruence there, right? Their walk and their talk just don't align very well. They'll never perfectly align, but they're not aligning very well. Then my suggestion, suggestion is, and I really want to hear what Harlan's take is on it, is that they need to they need to get back to uh, step one, and sometimes it's a step two issue, and and then work through them thoroughly, uh, precisely as laid out in the big book. So I, I hope that helps. And Harlan, what do you think? Okay, thank you, Larry. That was a great answer. For centuries, coal miners would bring a canary with them in a cage down to the coal mine, and if the canary died, they knew that it was poisonous gas that killed it, and they would get the heck out of there. The canary in the coal mine for people in OA is when they are struggling with this idea of eating and they're working the steps, and I say working in steps with air quotes, with quotation marks around it. There are a lot of people that go way too slowly. There are four impediments to God, very quickly for time. The first impediment is a resentment that we will not let go of. The second is a secret we will not tell. The third one is a vicarious thrill that we will not stop. And the fourth one is an amends that we will not make. And there are people that are, quote, unquote, working the steps, and they're going to do their ninth step amends, but they're not doing 10 and 11. Because somewhere somebody gave them some misinformation that you don't do 10 until you're all done with nine, and that's what's killing a lot of people. You have to go quickly and thoroughly. You could do a chapter a day at least. It doesn't take more than a day to do a chapter. You have to go quickly. And if you are eating or thinking about eating or obsessing about eating and you're back in that diet mentality of hunkering down on unaided willpower, as Larry said, it is not if you're going to pick up. It's just a question of, when you're going to pick up. 
And, Carolyn, I'm really glad that you asked that question because so many people will call me and say, I'm doing this, and they're in tears most of the time. I'm working the steps, but I'm still wanting to eat or I'm eating. Two and ten are the most ignored steps. Three and four are the most misunderstood. And where you see people struggling, usually you'll go to two and ten, and that will be the culprit right there. They're trying to drag a God that they are not willing to believe in into their program, and this is where a lot of it falls down, and they're not doing proper ten steps. They have confused ten with eleven, that it's something that they do in the morning and at night, and ten is done throughout the day. But I'm thrilled that you asked that question, Carolyn, because these are the pitfalls. If, you, if somebody on this line, whether it's on the podcast or whether they're in Minnesota or whether they're in God knows where, and you are thinking about eating more than you know you should be, chances are we go to right back to the beginning, work it through quickly, and 2 and 10 are usually the culprits, 2 and 10. Thanks. Thank you, Carolyn S.H., for your question. Gladys S., your turn. Hi, my name is Gladys. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Hello? Yes, Gladys, go ahead. Oh, I'm Gladys, compulsive overeater here in Chicago. Um, thank you, uh, guys, for the shares. I heard, I think, the end of Harlan and all of Larry, but, you know, I listen to Larry's uh, talks a lot. I mean, Harlan talks a lot on the, uh, the recordings, and... You know, I get a lot out of what both you and Larry say. But today, Larry, you know, I just kind of heard Larry speaking on, um, you know, hearing more clearly about, you know, the program of recovery in the big book, you know, and how it's like a tax and everything. And with my, I'm going to try to condense this because it's kind of long, but with my uh, uh, personal uh, process, um, like when my first power sponsor working the steps with me in the 12 and 12 or OA, and then another one did the big book, like in the how group. But each time, you know, like I relapsed and I just wanted, you know, and I, I hear you all, you know, kind of share about like the ones that, you know, don't really follow the guidelines, you know, and the way it's written in the big book, like, you know, because I've been around for a while. So basically my question is, is um, and, and to put this in, Larry said something about uh, Harlan, you know, his weight. And, you know, I, I kind of cringe when, like, I hear Harlan's story and, and even though he was really, really way overweight than me and everything, it's like he was going to college. I dropped out in high school because I couldn't even understand the math then, and I, I relate it now to the to the uh, food. But do you think that the ones like me that's been around uh, for a long time and just wasn't getting it is because we didn't want it? Or is it's a possibility that it's some type of learning disability there that we can't understand even the, the simple text that I couldn't, you know, understand it to the level like I'm getting it now with with a sponsor? I don't know if that question, did you understand the question? I get it. I understand. Yeah, no, no, it makes sense. Gladys, um, uh, you know, I, I know for me, 
and I've, I've met you before, and uh, I, um, I, I received, you know, uh, when I came into the rooms, maybe like a lot of people, there was a lot of wonderful, nurturing, well-intentioned people, and you've probably run into some of those people too. And we were, you and I, we were at a, a, a meeting not long ago, and there's just, there's beautiful people. I, I love OA. And I think it's not, you know, we have to really get to the truth of this, that if we look at the message that's being carried sometimes, you know, and we, and we sort of try to connect back to what was done when this program was first developed, okay? And that's, I've talked about a little bit about that the first 25 years in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, the, the message, the way it was carried to people like you and me, and the way it was developed by our pioneers, it told us, it told us how, we, how, we, how we needed to proceed. And it talked very specifically about working these steps and working them quickly and getting to the, getting to the point, the first three steps, you know, steps one, two, and three were very simply just kind of preparation steps to get us right with this notion of a higher power. And, and then four through seven, steps four through seven were we're going to allow us to take these deliberate actions, right, to get right with, with ourselves. And that's eventually that message was carried to me, and I started to work that. And then steps eight and nine, where we go out and make amends, is getting right with others. And then 10, 11, and 12 allow me to stay right with, with God, with myself, and with others. And I think I've dealt with a lot of people, and, and I, I tell you, I, I don't know about you, Gladys, but I was always a math avoider. I was never good. It was like, like Harlan says, want, want, want. I never really heard. So I think that was my learning disability. And it came, there was a lot of pain because I just wasn't getting it. I wasn't getting it. And, you know, whether, whether or not the, the way I was taught math was improper, let's say, by well-intentioned people, or whether or not I had something within me that made it difficult for me to grasp those concepts. The reality was it really didn't matter. At some point, you know, uh, at some point, um, I learned to function in this world and I learned to be able to utilize what skills I had and I'm able to live a better life. And I think the same thing with you now. You're getting that message and you're hearing a clear message. So I don't know if there's great utility in, in worrying about the chicken or the egg. I think. What it says in the big book is if we, if we follow this program to the best of our ability, we're not saints. Gladys, you and I aren't saints. But we're willing to, uh, to move along and progress along, uh, uh, not expecting perfection, but in the best way possible. And if you do that, you watch what happens. You've seen some changes already. You continue to watch what happens. So I hope that helps. And Harlan? Okay. Thanks, Larry. Gladys? This book was written for people with fourth grade educations. You seem intelligent, way more intelligent than you would need to be to understand this book. This is a very, very simple process, and we're going to love you, and we're going to nurture you through it. But what I do in my life is sometimes I have to remember that in the big book, it says that the alcoholic whose world is distorted and exaggerated, distorted and exaggerated. I look at the book and I look at the steps and my fear wells up within me. My intimidation factor wells up within me and I decide even before going in 
that I can't get it. And you know what that is? That has nothing to do with a learning disability. That has to do with ego. My confusion is equal to what my ego does not want me to see. This is a simple program. Gladys, can you conceive right now on the phone that you're powerless over food, that you have an allergy of the body and a twist of the mind that makes it impossible for you to stay stopped and impossible for you to stop once you started? Can you conceive of that right now? I can now, but at first I never did. You just worked step one. You've just worked step one because steps one, two, and three are not working steps. They're conclusions of the mind. Can you conceive in your mind and in your heart right now that only a power greater than yourself could restore you to sanity? Yes. Are you willing to believe in that power? You don't have to believe. You just have to be. Would you be willing to believe? Yes, I'm willing. You've just worked step two. You've just worked step two. We're two steps in. Would you be willing to turn your life, which is your action and your will, which is your thinking, over to the care and direction of God by completing steps 4 through 12? Would you be willing to do that? Yes. We're three steps in, and we're just on the phone three seconds. I have every belief in you that God who began a good work in you will complete it. You can do this. And if you find yourself floundering, if you find yourself confused or you find yourself intimidated by any of us, we are here to love you and help you. You take my phone number down at the end of this, and if you ever need me, you call me. I don't care what time it is. I don't care what day it is. You call me, and I'll help you. Okay. Okay? You promise me you will? Yes, I will. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Thank you all. Thanks for your questions. Thank you, Gladys. Lisa P. Yeah, hi. This is Lisa from Colorado. I have a question for both of you, but I have um, maybe Harlan um, uh, specifically. Uh, Harlan, I've talked about, I've heard you talk many, many, many times about your mother and how she had three distinct personalities and those and the, the trauma that it was growing up in your household. And I had a uh, childhood much like yours, and my mother was very much like that as well and i've i've incorporated a lot of the trauma in my own life and i have probably dissociative disorder and i've worked really hard i've been abstinent almost nine years i've done the big book step study process and i have to say it's worked really well to take all these different parts through the big book step study process and and it, but it's very very slow and when i hear talk about going really fast that has not been my experience i've found incredible growth from doing it really, really slow. And I just wanted to see what you think of this whole thing about taking the inner child through a turnaround. I do that all through the day just to try and stay sane and stay obstinate. And I'll, and I'll listen. Um, I didn't hear a question there. I'm, I'm saying what is it versus uh, the quick way versus the, the um, really slow way, you know, for different people, for different um um, did you do it the slow way? I did it the really, really slow way. Did it, yeah. And did it work for you? It was incredibly helpful. In a horror. Good. That's, whatever works for you, fantastic. I am yeah. not here to question any success. Yeah. I am, if, if, if you doing it the slow way works for you, then that is fine. And, and that's great. What, I'm, what Larry and I are talking about when we say do it quickly. And there are other speakers, other 
special editions. You're going to hear this more and more than, than you'll hear it, than, than you won't, to do it quickly, because that's the way the pioneers did it. I don't know your pathology. I don't know if you're a compulsive overeater, if you're not, whatever. I don't know any of that. I don't know. What I'm saying is if you took a 1,000 people or a million people and you lined them up and you said, here, you're going to do it slowly and you're going to do it quickly, the better chance of recovery comes from doing it quickly. And that's all I'm saying. But if doing it slowly works for you, Ken O'Hara, God bless you. Thank you. God bless you. Thanks. Yeah, I was going to, if you don't mind, I'll jump in too. Um, I agree too, you know, um, Nobody, uh, nobody dictates how someone else works the program, but I, I can only share, you, share with you my experience. So just briefly, hopefully briefly here, you know, my mother, I, 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 woke, I was raised in a very volatile home. There was love, no question, but it was, there was a lot of volatility and a lot of abuse, physical and emotional. And my mother was addicted to amphetamines. Um, and uh, my mother... Uh, she, she, we used to joke, we had the cleanest house around with, uh, because, uh, you know, on amphetamines. Now they, they, they were, they were diet drugs. That's what they used. And Harlan talked about that too, when he was a boy, but my mother, um, for many years, so it was like walking on eggshells with her. Now here's the thing. So I want to bring it back to your, your point. Um, I spent years in, in therapy. I'm a big fan, big fan of therapy. It helped me to process through things. Um, it was, you know, the anxiety. It was diagnosed with, you know, various things with uh, related to anxiety. Who knows, you know, how much of that had a physiological basis um, versus what, you know, nature and nurture, all these different things. Okay, but here's the bottom line, because these are side issues. That therapy, for me, for me personally, this program is not about therapy. Now, for someone else, it, can be, it has been very therapeutic. Absolutely. The identification process, all that stuff. This program, the purpose of this program for me was to produce a, an essential psychic change, to produce a spiritual awakening sufficient to do a number of things, one of which of those things was to, was to remove or, uh, that obsession, uh, you know, to, to remove that obsession contingent on my fit spiritual condition, right? So it's a, not a permanent process. I have to work for that. Now, amazingly, a lot of other of those childhood things and traumas and so forth have gotten better in a way that I could not have envisioned that they would coming into this program. But so when I advocate for working through these steps quickly, it is not to poo-poo anybody that's receiving tremendous benefit, therapeutic and otherwise, by working it slowly. It is just to say my experience is consistent with what the early pioneers had, that people were you had these gutter drunks that the obsession was lifted. And that's why someone like Bill Wilson and many others, they were able to put the syringe down. I was able, amazingly, I can't believe I can tell you this, that I was able to put the food down despite I'm comfortable in my own skin today, despite calamity and challenge. So I wish you well, and I think it's, it's wonderful. However you work it, if you have success, like Harlan says, it's terrific. So uh, with that, I'll pass. Thank you very much, both of you. Thank you, Lisa P. And who else might have a question this morning? This is our final invitation for questions. Margie, Margie, this is Margie from the state of Minnesota. I'm okay. at an OA convention with 23 other people of us gathered. 
Wonderful. Margie, one moment. Anyone else with a question this morning? Leslie W. Okay. I didn't catch the last name. Leslie W. Leslie W. Good morning. Who else? Leah, Joanne L. Joanne L. All right. Anyone else with a question for Larry or Harlan this morning? Great opportunity to ask your questions. Yeah, my name is Jeff H. I have a question. Jeff H. Kathy K. Kathy K. Anyone Rivka? else? Rivka? Rivka? Okay. Yes. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You? Did I catch everybody? Nikki W. Um, one more. Rifki W. Is that correct, the last one? Nikki. Mitzi. Okay. Any others? Yes, Eileen M. Eileen M. Okay, fantastic. Again, please request everybody mutes except for Margie. Go ahead, Margie. Hi, this is Margie from Minnesota. So the, the question that I have is I had a friend who's who's absent in 23 years who lost it. We had a topic called uh, recovery purgatory. My biggest concern in my recovery process is relapse prevention and getting back into denial. What's the best way to to stop that denial from creeping back in? You or me? Or you want to go first? Uh, go, go ahead, Harlan. Go ahead. Uh, work with others. Work the steps. I, I don't have any longer answer than that. That denial, that relapse will come when we stop working the steps and stop putting ourselves out there working with others. I sit in meetings with people all the time that have been in OA for decades. And when we go around the room and identify who's a sponsor, they have never put their hand up yet. I've lived in Arizona for 13 years. And for 13 years, I have sat in the room with these people, and they've never sponsored anyone. They've never taken a service position. They've never done anything to serve the next sick compulsive overeater. They're not doing 10. They're not doing 11. And that means that they're in the food before you can say two and two is four. And that's the answer to the program, to the question. Excuse me. You work the steps, and you put yourself out there, you're never going to relapse. If you don't, you will relapse. Larry, all yours. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Harlan. Harlan just dropped the mic. I have nothing to add. <laughs> other than, but I have always something to add. Okay, um, just to piggyback on what he said, um, you know, relapse. Um, and it's an interesting, interesting uh, uh, concept. Um, yes, if we start, you know, there, there are some warnings in the big book about what, you know, would happen if we rest on our laurels. But I can tell you for me, your, your experience might be different. There was no resting on my laurels. I never had worked the steps. I, I stick my toes in the pool. Oh, I did that. Yeah, I dabbled in the steps. Uh, sometimes I worked very diligently. It was like working on my PhD. Sometimes I worked very diligently, very, very hard. Um, and other times uh, I was drunk uh, with, uh, you know, Oreo crumbs all over my face and knee deep in pudding, you know what I mean? But um, so I had never worked the steps. So I, for me, I had never really had a slip 
because um, I never found myself, as someone said, you know, uh, just magically outside of Dunkin' Donuts, like, and, and just so, sort of a gravitational pull that I was, next thing you know, I was into the donuts. No, that was always, um, that was always planned for me. It was always planned because for me, I was holding my breath underwater and these, you know, I was dieting with group support and I knew it and I knew it. Um, I didn't want to own up to it, but I knew it. So I guess there's two different things. For me, I never got to resting on my laurels, never worked the steps precisely, quickly, um, as laid out in the big books. I hope that helps a little bit. Thanks, Margie. Hello to everybody in Minnesota. Leslie W. Thank you, Leah. Can you hear me? Yes, Leslie. This is Leslie W. I'm a newly recovered compulsive overeater in Tennessee. And I just want to thank you all for your service, Harlan, Larry, Leah. I am so thankful for this vision for you. Um, It has really turned my program around and helped change my life. And I also want to thank you for the importance of stressing the importance of um, stressing the importance of the expediency of working the steps because I believe that was my problem was not working these steps um, quickly, and that's why I had so many relapses. But my question today is more about um, uh, if 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 I have been working with a sponsor who was a has been my sponsor for years now, um, she's not on the vision call, but um, she's worked me through the steps, through the big book, as well as, you know, using the 12 and 12 of of AA and OA, but we have been through the big book. We have worked it through the big book. Um, But I guess I'm doubting my new, I'm doubting my recovered status um, because, because she herself does not define herself as a recovered compulsive overeater she still defines herself as recovering and she believes that one can recover. And and we've talked about this. Um, And, you know, I guess that whole idea of you can't can't transmit something that you don't have. I, I I just, I just wonder, you know, um, I'm having some doubts about that because she is not herself a recovered. She does not define herself as a recovered compulsive overeater. So is it possible for one to be recovered even though they have taken their training from one who is recovering? Does that make sense? Go ahead, Harlan. Okay. All right. Leslie, here is here is the um here is the way I, I show people if you're recovered or not. I want you to listen to me for just a second here. I'm reading from the bottom of page eighty four. And I want you to ask yourself, does this tally with where you're at? And we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, for by this time sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as if from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we we will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We're not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we have been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. 
We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. Now, those are the 10-step promises, if you will. Does this, do you think about food a lot? Have, have you, no. Are you tempted to eat a lot? Are you in a situation where things are just out of whack? No, not or at all. You, then you're fine. Then you're recovered. I mean, in fact, just yesterday, you know, um, and sometimes even though, I mean, I've heard, <laughs> I've heard Charles talk about the ketchup story. <laughs> and there are there are times, <laughs> and there are times uh, now that I'm recovered. You know, um, if I find myself thinking about a certain food, um, then I just yesterday um, there, we had a particular you know food item in our house, and I found myself thinking about having more of that item. But my high power told me not to. I surrendered that, and I'm I'm okay. I, I was okay with that. Fine, no problem. Um, you know because. It's it's not worth it to me. I'm not. I, it's not worth it to pick up again to go back to that state. And I surrendered it easily and without any um, difficulty. Okay, eyes so, on your own paper. You're recovered. Don't worry about okay. anything else or anyone right, else. Or what so they're much. doing, what they're not doing. You know, whatever. Thank I just you. got a text by the way. If I can throw in, what does I guess you're asking me? Kinahora mean? I, that's misspelled. Kinahora just means God bless you. Great. You know, Kino, my, my son just won a billion dollars. Kinahora. It's, it's like a blessing. That's what it is. So whoever, Thank I don't you. know the phone number of the person that's texting me that, but um, that's what Kinahora means. Okay. But anyway, sounds like you're recovered. So keep keep doing it and keep doing the work, Leslie. Thanks, Thank Leslie. You. Thanks for your question. Joanne L., Good morning, Larry. Good morning, Holland. This is Joanne L. from Rhode Island. Can you hear me okay? Yes, your question, please. Yes, okay. Um, okay, I have been through the big book step study sponsor. Um, I've been through the big book step study process. And then, um, and I've been, you know, in program and going to big book step study meetings for a very long time. And then I relapsed. How is it that that could even be possible. You know, if I go into meetings and I believe that I'm working the steps and I do 10 steps and um, I, I know, you know, that maybe my spiritual life has to get bigger, but I just don't know where else to go. I don't know what else to do. And I need some help. Okay. Larry, you want to take that first? Yeah, or? sure, sure. Hey, Joanne. Um, yeah, Hi, boy, I Hi, hi, hi. You know, I can, I can hear, you know, I can hear that desperation in your voice and I, um, I, I can so relate. Oh my gosh. Um, I remember where I, I just, there was frustration, there was sadness, there was despair because I thought, you know, I'm doing what I'm following, what I think I should be following, you know, and, but I wasn't able to stay stopped. And so that was, I had to own up to the fact that, you know, that evidence alone for me, Joanne, for me, because I'm not here to take anyone's inventory. I'm just a man out here in Chicago. Okay. Um, but for me, uh, I had that fact alone uh, was evidence that the obsession was alive and well. 
you know, and uh, for me. And, you know, some people get into the, you know, into the semantics of recovered or recovering. I don't get, you know, into that too much other than to, I know what the, what the terminology is in the big book, which is it talks about recovered, the state of recovered. But Joanne, I think with, with you, it's it, like so many of us, it's just a matter for me. I had to fully concede to my innermost self this was the instructions of step one, that I indeed had this thing that I identified in with this twofold nature of this illness. And when I was able to do that, I think for me, looking back and Harlan has shared many times about step two was an issue for me. You know, it wasn't so much the notion that I, I, I definitely conceived and believed in, in, in a power greater than myself, but you know what, Joanne, I didn't think this higher power would restore me to sanity. You know why? Because it hadn't happened. It hadn't happened up to that point. So I, there was a lot of trepidation on my part about step two. And I, I think I had to drill down with a compassionate, recovered person and work through that issue in step two. Because as long as I knew that I was in trouble, I knew that I was, that I was powerless. But this notion of a higher power restoring me to sanity and not so much. I, 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 just, I just don't know that I was there. And I had to come to believe over time. That's how it unfolded for me. So, yes, I had to revisit those, those, those um, you know, the preparation steps in order to then be ready to move on into the action steps. And I'd be happy to help you. So you know where to find me. Uh, thank you, <laughs> thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, Joanne. We I'll look forward quick. to I'll hearing be... your progress. Yes, Harleen, I'll be want... quick. I'll be quick to Joanne's to, to Joanne's question for time and for for Joanne. The first thing I would look at is two and ten. The first thing I would look at is okay. two and ten. Are you doing ten mm -hmm. steps throughout the day? Are you harboring mm -hmm. resentment? Are you harboring emotions, fears, guilt, shame, remorse? Are you harboring selfishness? If you're not doing 10 and you're not doing two, that would be the first thing I would look at. But there's another thing that I would look at, and that is the physical part. When I was about 450 pounds, I leveled off for months. I couldn't lose an ounce. As a matter of fact, I would follow everything to the letter of the law, and I would gain two and a half pounds for the week, and I was ready to scream. I was ready to, I was ready to take hostages. Um, I had to look at things I didn't want to look at. And what I had to look at was what I was eating. And there were condiments, salad dressings. There were things that I was eating in greater amounts than I needed to eat them. And I was also eating things that were triggering the physical allergy. One of the chief culprits was sweet and low. I had to get rid at that time of sweet and low. I was mm -hmm. using it in my coffee, and I was using salad dressings where I might as well have been putting Hershey syrup on my salad because mm -hmm. there was a ton of sugar in there. So I was eating things that were uh, triggering the physical allergy. And I would look at two, I would look at ten because those Two changes over time, and food plans must change over time. As I age, I have to eat less and less food. I don't like it either. I don't like it. Every time I see my nutritionist, I tell her the same thing. I hope you get trapped in a fire in a burning building and they can't get you out. 
and we laugh about that, but I tell him that every time because because I know she's going to take food away from me, and I don't want her to. But this is the reality is that it is a progressive illness. It gets worse over time. And, Joanne, I hope that answered it. Yes, thank you very much. I just picked up a new sponsor, and um, the food is down. It's been three days, but it's a beginning, so pray for me. Thank you so much, you guys. I love you guys. Thanks, Joanne. Thank you. If everybody could mute, please, my pleasure. If everybody can mute, please, so we can hear Jeff H. with his question. Yeah, uh, this is Jeff H. I'm from... uh, Iowa, but I'm up here at the Minnesota Convention with some more students. Let me say it, uh, first that I'm an uh, unapologetic big book thumper and, and a recovering alcoholic that I've been in OA for two years, and uh, Harlan, you, and Larry, and Lori C. have been instrumental in my uh, recovery because my sponsor made me listen to you. And, and, <laughs> and I know the answer's in the big book, but here's my question. Uh, how do we get people to enter the rooms? You know, I, I, we know what the recovery answer is. It's the steps in the big book. But how do we get, how does the message get out to the people that will never even know about Overeaters Anonymous? I know it's attraction rather than promotion, but how can we get them in the rooms? What can we do different? Well, you got to drive over to the local fast food restaurant and drag them out of the (laughs) – pull them in, okay? No, you know what I heard, and, you know, Harlan uh, always says, a great mentor of mine, you know, recover, recover, recover. (laughs) So, Harlan, I don't know if you want to elaborate on that. Okay. I will elaborate on it by sidestepping the actual question of how do we get new people in the rooms. We should get new people in the rooms. And, Larry, you answered it by recover, recover, and recover. Jeff, if you're bringing your message of recovery to the meeting, then that's about all you can do. But I want to address, if I can, very quickly, Leah, because I know we're pushing time, uh, another question that's related to yours. And that is, what about the people that are already in the rooms? and they're dying of their untreated addiction? What about the people that are sitting beside us in the rooms and we're hugging them to death? You know, the World Convention of Overeaters Anonymous in Boston elaborated for us some of the efforts that we're making and some of the money that we're spending to get new people in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous. That's good work. I applaud it, and I think it's wonderful. That's great. That's great but we are hugging people to death that are sitting right beside us and they are dying of their untreated food addiction. And we tell them to keep coming back. And we hug them and we tell them how wonderful they are. And we shouldn't not tell them that they're wonderful. That's a terrible sentence. We shouldn't not love them. We should love them. But we need to in a loving way sit down with them and say, what can I do to help you? What can I do so that you can be recovered? I'm willing to do anything that it takes. So let's focus in on what's in the room, starting with ourselves and recover. And then let's not judge. But let's know that there are people sitting in that room 
that are dying. And their bodies are shedding the tears that their eyes refuse to cry. And they're dying. Let's help them if we can by recovering. And that's, that's the greater task. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff H. Kathy K. Hi. Um, returning from relapse, how do you get day one? Well, it's a four-word answer. Larry, you want to say it or should I? <laughs> you take it, Harlan. Put down the food. You are powerless. You heard Larry and I talking this morning that you are powerless, but you are not helpless. You know by the fact that you're on this phone that there are meetings on this phone. You know that there, are, that, that there is a fellowship in your area. You know that you can pick up a phone and make a phone call and talk to one of us. You've got to start by putting down the food. In AA, they say plug the jug. What we don't say is keep eating and we'll work the steps with you. That's not going to work. You are powerless. You are not helpless. And that's the only answer I have. Larry, if you want to elaborate on that. Yeah, just quickly. No, that's the answer. Where, where, where are you located? What city? I'm in Staten Island, New York. I've been in oh, LA. Staten job. Island. Staten yes. Island, girl. Okay. So somewhere within a 10-mile radius in Staten Island, somebody just last night, they came off heroin. And that's safe to assume, right? And, uh, and they are crawling out of their skin. They are hallucinating. See, I've seen it. I've seen these people. I've worked with some of these people. They are vomiting. They are feeling like they are dying. They, they, their anxiety level is at a 10 panic attack level and you can't give them much obviously to alleviate that and they are powerless and they're crap in their pants excuse my 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 imagery there and they are powerless clearly but they too are not helpless and so you are going to go through it's day one because we've all been there you are going to go through a period of horrible uncomfortability. Maybe not like the heroin addict within a few miles of you, but and believe me, they are not dragging that man or that woman that almost died last night into the, into the rooms of NA, let's say, Narcotics Anonymous, and, and begin to work the steps. They, that person has to dry out. They have to get a clear, some clarity of mind. But you know what? Some of those people will die, just like in the rooms of OA, might, might be a little bit slower. Some of those people will go back out, you know, but you can do it. You can put it down. And guess what? Only you can do it. God will not come down and put it down for you. Nobody, Bill Wilson isn't going to come out of his grave and sit down at your kitchen table and take you through the, the steps. You have to put the food down, like Harlan said. With that, I'll pass. Thank you, Kathy, for the question. Rivka. Hi, good morning. This is Minky from New York. Hi. Hold on one second, Minky. Rivka, go ahead, please. Thank you, Leah. Thank you for giving service. It was a beautiful program this evening. I'm glad that I was able to be and join with with you. And uh, Harlan and Larry, thank you. I can sense that um, 
You're very warm and loving and kind-hearted people, and uh, I really appreciate your uh, thoughts on uh, doing the step work. So my question, real quick, um, and, and this is not in, in a case with me, but I'm just going to throw it out there. Maybe there's somebody else that's struggling with this. You have somebody new coming in. They want you to be their sponsor, but they're already doing some step work in another 12-step program, and you're stating to them, well, look, you've got to do it the OA way. Um, but they're saying, yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm not ready to commit suicide. I'm just ragged with this. What do you say to these people? And with that, I'll pass. Thanks. Okay. You you want to go first, or should I? You uh, go go ahead, Harlan. Pretty much ignore it. Um, the credits are not transferable. <laughs> the credits are not transferable from other programs to OA. We are the last house on the block, and there is going to be a difference. Somebody's popping popcorn on the line here, or something. But anyway. There is a different level of accountability in OA that does not present itself in other 12-step programs. They do not have to constantly change their food plan. They don't have to constantly update their, their food plan, things like that. So you pretty much just say to them, you have to shut all that stuff out, and this is the work you need to do in OA. Singleness of purpose. Singleness of purpose. This is OA. We don't, I don't sit and think, well, what step are you on in this program? Or what step are you on in that? Uh, 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 uh. This is the work in OA. And that's all I got, Lair. I got nothing to add. <laughs> all right. <laughs> okay. I'm just going to take a moment to clear the line. Of course, Larry Harlan, you'll need to press star one to unmute. Okay. Okay. Mickey. Star one to unmute. It's your turn. Hi, good morning. This is Nikki from New York. Um, okay, so I have a question. Um, so I'm living in 10, 11, and 12, and I'm abstinent and recovered. Um, I just sometimes have trouble with steps two and three. Um, do you recommend to repeat the steps, or is there um, a way how to go about it and a way to work it? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I'm understanding the question. Harlan, do you get a sense of Yeah, I guess the question is she's, she's worked the step, she's recovered, but she's having trouble with two and three. What I need to do to really update two on a, on a minute-to-minute basis is I have to look at how I'm praying and how I'm meditating. I know meditation is step 11. I'm aware of that. I got that down. But my prayer and meditation life are, are linked together. Am I running through a bunch of prayers like I'm reciting the phone book? Or am I slowing down? Am I thinking about what I'm doing? And so there are certain prayers that I say every day. But certain things I will change in and out to freshen up my prayer life. And I will from time to time sit down and I will take a piece of paper and a pencil and I will write down what is it that God is to me? What is it that my higher power is to me? Is he a person who's a taskmaster? Is he a person who's out to kick my butt? Absolutely not. I don't need that. I've already had that. I've had Reese's peanut butter cups kick my butt many, many times. So 
is it something I'm going through like as a rote process or is it something that I'm thinking about that I'm appreciating? And another thing I do to expand my step two is I do a gratitude list every day. I have to do a gratitude list every day because I'll forget how lucky I am. Because my mind is filled with girls I don't have and houses I don't live in and cars I don't drive. But my mind isn't full of how lucky I am to be able to walk and see and hear and and speak and do the things I do every day and for the house, the roof over my head and the people that I love in my life. I forget those things. And that's how I expand on step two. Step three is very simply an agreement to do four through 12. Three and four are the most misunderstood steps. Two and 10 are the most ignored. And that's about the only answer I have. Larry, I don't know what. Yeah, the the only thing I would add to that um, is with step three, you know, we're making an affirmative declaration you know, so every day I make that, that same affirmative declaration. They say a prayer is ended with, with amen, so be it, you know. Uh, but that's more of a semantic uh, type of thing. But I, I do, I take that step every day, you know, come rain or shine, you know, uh, illness, uh, hard work day, whatever it is, I, I get on my knees and I, I, I make that affirmative declaration. What am, I, what am I affirmatively declarating, if you will? Well, just as Harlan said, that I am committed to working these steps. And so one of the things that helps me is this notion, maybe you've heard of it before, kind of a set-aside prayer. And I really like that, I, my own version, and I say it with other people. Um, nobody's hung up on me yet, uh, but, to, but, but, but it's still early, so that may happen today. But anyway... Um, you know, God, help me to set aside everything I thought I knew about this program, about how to work it, about um, how I can be of maximum service to you and to those about me. And God, would you do me a favor? Would you fill me with everything you would have me think and feel and do? That set aside prayer. And you know, what's funny, the more I say it, the more it becomes a working part of my mind. So, um, and I say it with others, and it's, it's amazing. And, and as I say, nobody has ever said, that's how I affirmatively declarate that I'm going to continue on with this. I, I need to set aside everything I thought I knew about a lot of things every day. It's a, it's a humility each day. I try my best. And then, I, and then I, uh, I, I, as an imperfect human being, I will perhaps, my toes will be stepped on. Um, I, may step, I may step on some toes. Um, but it seems to work. It's a design for living that works. So I hope that helps. Thanks, Thanks, Minky. And our final question for this morning comes from Eileen M. Eileen, star one to unmute. Hi, Leah. Can you hear me? Yes. Go ahead. Um, this is Eileen M., Grateful Recovered Compulsive Overeater from New Hampshire. And um, thank you so much, both of you. I really enjoyed listening. I, I learned a lot in the past, just in the past hour. Um, what My question is, I'm looking at page 84 where it says, continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When mm-hmm. these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. 
Um, I just wanted to ask, I have a fear that's very specific, which I wrote down in my fourth step, you know, shared it with my sponsor in my fifth step, and I've noticed it keeps coming up over and over. And I have since talked to two recovered compulsive eaters in program um, in vision about it um, more specifically, you know, and how, how it's making my life unmanageable. And um, what I've been just doing is I've been asking God to remove it. I've been, um, you know, saying the fear prayer pretty frequently. And I'm just wondering, I expected this fear to have been removed, and it's not. So I just wondered, um, do you have any suggestions about that? Or I do. Uh, I'll just go real quickly. I'm sure Harlan may jump in, too. Now, it's a great question. I, too, have fears that, that crop up. Um, I wasn't sprinkled with pixie dust, you know, when I, when I, when I worked through these steps and this, this, this spiritual awakening, this, this complete psychic change began to unfold. It's an unfolding process. I still have fears that crop up from time to time, some very specific ones. I still have panic disorder. I have that, which can be tied to some certain things, but certain circumstances. So here's what I would say, um, and I don't know if this, this is me, okay, so I'm not speaking, you know, that you're doing this, but I certainly did. I worked um, my program, I call it, you know, uh, you remember the character Veruca from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? You know, oh, I not want... really, but... <laughs> okay, well, well, Veruca was this, was the, was the little girl that, she was the bad egg. And she went on, and, and if, you, if you've seen that, you know, and she, you know, she, Daddy, I want, my, I want an Oompa Loompa, and I want it, you know what I want it? I want it now. She was a little girl, a little kind of bratty girl. That's how I worked it. I wanted the fear removed. And you know when I wanted it removed? I want it now. And you know, and don't I deserve it? You know, and here's the thing though. The thing about it is the beauty of the fact that the fears and the different things and the resentments still come up. Here's how I frame it today. My life is much better, but if I didn't have those things, if God removed all of those, I'm ready for God to remove all of those. You know, for me, I don't know about you, I wouldn't have a need for God. Because that's, you know, as a selfish uh, human being, I wouldn't have a need for God if God removed everything. So it serves some purpose for me, but yet I continue to go to reach out to the creator of my own understanding to ask for those things to be removed, just like it says in the, in the section that you talked about there. And, you know, when, for me, when I move on in that process and I turn my, resolutely turn my thoughts to someone else I can help, it gets me out of myself. And I can live with those things. And, and, you know, the fears begin to, they begin to dissipate. They begin to dissipate and it gets more manageable. So I hope that helps a little bit. Thanks for the question. It does, Larry. Um, Thank you. I don't have a lot to add. Uh, do I want it removed? Because there's a benefit to a resentment or a fear. And the, and the benefit is I don't have to take any responsibility for my life. If I can resent you, if I can fear you or fear something, then I don't have to take responsibility for my life. So for me, the first ingredient is, do I want to indeed have it removed? And the other thing that I have to do is get out of myself, as Larry said. And another thing that helps me is writing. Sometimes I do a Dear God letter. That's not in the big book, but that's what I do. I'll sit down and I'll do a Dear God letter and say, God, I have a fear about my business. God, I have a fear about my dog. My dog's 11 and a half years old. She's starting to fail. 
Her back legs are starting to collapse. She's been having some health problems of late, and I really don't want to lose her, but I know that the end of her life is imminent. And, and you know what? I have a fear around that, so I write Dear God letters, and I pray. When all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic will save the day. I get out of myself, and I know that God's got my back. I know God's got it. And that's the answer that I have. I hope that helps. Thank you, Eileen. Thank you, Eileen. Thanks to everybody who asked questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Harlan and Larry, for your generous service this morning. It's always a a thrill to spend some time with you. All right, we're going to wrap up by reading from page 164, which is the final page in the Chapter 11, A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.